Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series A Father's Farewell, a study of the book of 2 Timothy. The book of 2 Timothy was written by the Apostle Paul to his spiritual son, Timothy, and through him to all the sons and daughters of God. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's Word in your life today. Continuing our study in 2 Timothy, we are near the end and today we're going to be looking at 2 Timothy 4, 6-8, to 8, which I'm calling Finishing Well, not because I'm hoping to finish the series well, though I am, uh, but because this is what Paul's talking about at this point in the letter. It's a pretty famous text. And as always, you can follow along with me. Um, it'll be up here on the screen. You can also follow along in the booklet or, as I always encourage, look along in your Bible uh, to be able to test out everything that we're talking about. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. Hear now the words of the sovereign God. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Back uh, at the time that Paul wrote these words that we just looked at, the most famous athletic competition, of course, was the Olympic Games. And even though the Romans had conquered Greece and kind of taken over, they, they loved all things Greek. And so the Olympic Games were important to them. And Nero, the emperor, actually loved the games, but he was by rule not allowed to compete in the games. But he wanted to compete, so he actually got them to move the games up two years so that he could be involved and he wanted to race in the chariot race. Now, it was a four-horse chariot race, but Nero decided that he could have 10 horses pulling his chariot, that that was still going to be fair if he did it. You might be surprised, but he still didn't win the race. He actually fell out of the chariot, tried to get back in, didn't even finish the race, but then the shocking thing was he was declared the winner anyway. It's the privileges of being a corrupt emperor. It was so bad that later on, after Nero had died, they struck that from the Olympic record because they were like, well, that didn't really count. We all recognized that was bad. And Nero was actually known for these kind of shenanigans. He was, he was a guy who was not a righteous judge. He was the one that actually Paul had his hearing before. It, it appears from church history that probably Paul stood before him twice. The first time was acquitted because he was in fact innocent, but the second time was condemned and put to death because Nero wrongly judged many, including Paul. Now, I bring this up because, as you can imagine, if those kind of things that Nero did went on very often in the games, who would train hard to try and work in the games? 
No one. What would be the point? It wouldn't matter how hard I've trained and everything I've done if the emperor can just cheat, still lose, and have himself declared the winner. So knowing that actually the judgment is going to be true and right and righteous is very, very important for how we prepare and how we compete now. So today we want to look at how a, an eternal reward from the righteous judge can motivate us in our living now. Now Paul, as you remember, in the letter he's been trying, this whole letter has basically been an encouragement to Timothy. It's a father's final farewell. Timothy, I'm trying to write to you to encourage you. The church in Ephesus is beset by heresies. There are people there that are willing to shift and change the gospel to alter what the Word of God says so that they can get along better in the culture around them. Uh, the group that we're particularly talking about, the Gnostics, we know from church history, they both altered doctrine from the Word of God. They also were guilty of moral decay. And so Paul had said, look, Timothy, it's been prophesied, you live in the last days, because from the time Jesus comes to the time he returns, last days, and there will always be moral decay, and there will always be deception. But Timothy, you've got to stand strong. That's what he's really been building up and talking about through the letter. And now we come to the end, and Paul's bringing up his own circumstances. But he's not doing it to talk about himself ultimately, and even to give himself a pat on the back. This is all ultimately to point back and encourage Timothy. So he says, Timothy, here's what's happening. For I'm being poured out like a drink offering. And don't miss the little word for there. This isn't that Paul's completely changed what he's talking about. He's been telling Timothy, I've given you this charge. You must preach the word of God. Never back off preaching the word for I'm about to be gone. I'm not going to be here. I'm no longer going to be able to do this, Timothy. That's why I've reminded you of your call. That's why I've given you that charge. I'm going to be gone. You are going to have to accomplish this and fulfill it even though I am not here. And Paul uses this illusion here at the beginning. He says, I'm being poured out like a drink offering. Now, drink offerings aren't something we're used to hearing about. When we think of the Old Testament sacrifices, we think of the animals, uh, being killed and sacrificed. And that was the heart of it. But there were things that could accompany those. And one of those was you would take wine and you would pour it out. Uh, wine uh, offerings that were poured out accompanied the regular sacrifices. You can read about it in Numbers chapter 15 and get a description of it, how much wine was poured out. Uh, I'm not going to dig into all that, but it became used as a metaphor as well for when you are about to die, that you're going to be poured out like a, uh, a drink offering. The only two times it's used in the New Testament is here and in the book of Philippians. The apostle Paul in Philippians was in jail, going to stand trial before Nero the first time. And he wasn't certain. He thought he might be put to death then. And he had written these words to the Philippians. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering, he had told them, I'm not sure, you know, I would like to go and see Jesus, but I think it's more important for me to stay here with you, so I think I'm going to be staying here, and then he comes down in, in chapter 2, verse 17, says, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. 
So Paul here is saying, I don't think it's going to happen, but it might be that I'm going to be poured out like a drink offering. Nero might judge me and put me to death. And so it's the same idea, actually, in both passages. But in Philippians, Paul actually wasn't poured out. He was allowed to continue living. But here, he is certain this time it's not an if. In Philippians, it said, even if this is happening, notice here again in 2 Timothy 4, 6, I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. And this word departure was very common in Greek back then that when you used it, people understood. It, it was originally about a ship leaving, you know, leaving port, okay, or an army breaking camp and going, but it came to be used for I'm breaking camp out of this life. I'm departing out of this life. In other words, I am dying. And so when Paul used the analogy being poured out to the Philippians, he in fact was not. But here he knows he is going to be poured out. Now, we don't know if he knows that because he's already stood trial and Nero has already unrighteously convicted him. We don't know if it's he's just kind of read the writing on the wall, and he pretty much knows how the decision is going to go. We don't know if maybe the Lord has already appeared to Paul and told him, this is how it's going to end this time. You will not be released. But in any means, however it was, Paul's got a pretty clear sense that he's going to die, and it's going to be in the not-too-distant future. And this is going to kind of dominate the rest of the letter forward, and we'll look at uh, the last part next week. But I want you to notice here, Paul in no way shrinks from this prospect. And the reason he doesn't is for what he's been telling Timothy throughout the letter, which is why he's bringing it up. He's bringing it up to say, look, Timothy, I've been telling you the cost of faithfulness is suffering. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, not might be, will be persecuted. You live in the days that are marked by moral decay and spiritual deception, and if you stand for the truth of the Word of God, and if you stand for godly, right living, the culture is going to come down on you. Take it to the bank, Timothy, and that's exactly what is happening to me. And so Paul says, look, I want to remind you that that's okay, because our hope is not what the judges down here say, but what the Lord, the true, the final, the righteous judge says. And this is an idea that is important for us. Uh, when I was, you know, we were already into this series and uh, I went down for a board retreat with International Christian Concern, the persecuted church ministry that I'm on the board of. And during it, we were, we were watching some videos about persecuted Christians and things. And one of them was on a Christian named Watchman Nee. Watchman Nee was a leader in the church in China in the 1930s and 40s, and then when uh, Mao Zedong came into power, Watchman Nee was put into jail and was left in jail until he died. Uh, at one point, they released him for a little bit, but they brought him back. He continued to steadfastly stand for the gospel, and here is a hymn. Uh, there's a whole collection of hymns, and here's one that was just hymn 635 that Watchman Nee wrote. Not by gain uh, our life is measured, but by what we've lost tis scored. Tis not how much wine is drunken, 
but how much has been outpoured. For the strength of love ever standeth in the sacrifice we bear. He who has the greatest suffering ever has the most to share. Is that completely the opposite of what we're told in our culture or what? See, we're, he who dies with the most toys wins. This is no, he who gave the most toys away wins. This is, hey, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. There it is. It's not how much wine I drank. It's how much it was outpoured. You hear he's using that metaphor that Paul does. And the more you've been poured out, the more you have to share. And so the Apostle Paul has recognized this, and I, and I remind us, you know, we're at the end of Paul's life here, but you remember when Paul was converted on the road to Emmaus, what was it that the Lord told Ananias he was going to teach Paul? I'm going to teach him how much he can suffer. Now let's be honest, what if Jesus told you that at the beginning? You came down at the altar call, you're at a Billy Graham crusade, and they say, I just want you to know, you're going to be an example of how much one human being can suffer. Right? Is there another call, Lord? <laughs> Is there another option? Is there a plan B? But see, that's exactly what Paul had gone through. But let me ask you a question. How much ministry did God do through the Apostle Paul? See, even now to this day, we're still reading his word. We're all still drawing from them because he had been outpoured. And so Paul says, this is my present circumstances. I've been judged. I've been sentenced. I'm going to die. But Paul doesn't stop there. That gives him a chance to reflect. And he's going to look back on his past life and ministry. But I want you to remember as we go into this, it's not about Paul saying, hey, look at me. He's saying, Timothy, I'm reminding you, I'm stealing your back. I'm not going to be here, but I want you to know you can finish the race. And how he does that is Paul says uh, he uses a threefold metaphor for his own past life and ministry. This is, you know, a very famous verse. One of the more, more famous ones that Paul ever wrote. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now, all three metaphors here, what the NIV has translated is fight, race, and keeping the faith, which I'll come back to in uh, just a moment what each of those may mean or how they do it. They're all metaphors, and what's central to them is they all show the need to be faithful and the requirement to suffer if you're going to do it. If you're going to fight the fight, you're going to get hit. If you're going to run a race, it is painful. And if you're going to prove faithful, you're going to have to endure suffering. All of them do that. But it's also interesting, every one of the verbs that you're looking there, notice it's half fought, half finished, half kept. They're all what is known as a perfect tense in Greek, which is for an action that is already done. It's been completed in the past. The effects of it continue on till now. So Paul is not saying, I can see the finish line. I, I can hear the finish bell. It's almost over. Paul's saying it's already done. I've completed my race is behind me. My race has been won, and it's already completed for me. And notice how he breaks it down for Timothy. He's telling him that his completed life and ministry are about having finished well. Again, he's, he's encouraging Timothy. Timothy, it's tough. I understand. I've had a life that has been marked 
by suffering. And there are going to be those who are going to tell you you can't make it, but I want you to know I have fought the fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Timothy, you can do the same thing. That's what he's telling him, and he's trying to encourage him here as he brings these three out. Now, the first part is, I, as the NIV's got it, I fought the good fight. Uh, you could actually say, I've contested in the good contest. They, they don't do that because it doesn't sound very good in English. But the word there isn't really a word fight. You can even figure out what English word we get from it. It's agonizomai. I have agonized in the good agony. I've, I've been in the struggle. It was used for fights, wrestling matches. It was used for races. It was used for anything that it was like, this is a struggle. And Paul says, I want you to know I have been in that contest and I have contested in it. I want you to know that if it's a race, I ran the race. If it is a, a fight, I fought the fight. But the key idea, whichever way you want to look at the metaphor, is that it requires a long struggle. And Paul's not near the end. He's, he's crossed the finish line. He's tired. He's bending over, but he's saying the race is done. And notice there he says that I fought the good fight or I contested in the good contest. He's not even saying I ran a good race. He's saying that the race itself is a race worthy of running. The struggle is a good struggle. There is sacrifice and suffering that is required, but it's worth it. It's worth it because this struggle, this race is a good, noble contest. And so whatever suffering it calls for, Timothy, endure it because the contest is worth it. Secondly, he says, I have finished the race. And this is the normal word for actually a race. And so clearly here, he's talking about finishing a race. But you know, in a biblical sense, finishing the race does include our whole life, but there's a specific race that is marked out for each and every one of us from Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying, Jesus gave me a race to run. When he appeared to me on the road to Damascus, he interrupted my life, he put me on a course, and he told me to run that course, and I have now finished the course that Jesus Christ has given to me. The reason I am dying is because the race is run. And let me just say, one of the things we need to remember to comfort ourselves with the sovereignty of God, brothers and sisters, when you die, your race has been won. You are safe and kept by God until that last day. When Watchman Nee died, the man I quoted a couple of minutes ago, he died because he had finished the race that was marked out for him. The amazing thing is, the church in the West at that time worried and said, will the church in China survive? How are they going to survive without us there to help them? Did the church in China survive? How big is the church in China? It, it dwarfs us. Everybody was shocked when they found out because not only did they kick all of us out, Watchman Nee and the leaders, they like chopped the head off. But the church survived. 
because they were running the race God had marked out for them. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. His race, his life and ministry are done. He has crossed the finish line, and he's simply awaiting the time for the judge to give him whatever reward he's going to get. That's where he's at. And this is a metaphor that Paul had used much earlier in his life in Acts chapter 20. It's really worth reading if you got some extra time and you want to do it. Read Acts 20 and Paul's message there to the Ephesian elders because it's the same church that Timothy is now having to work with. And he had warned them that heresy was going to come. And Paul spoke these words to those Ephesian elders. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given to me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. See, this was years before when Paul was heading him before he got imprisoned. And he was warned, if you remember, somebody said, you're going to go to Jerusalem and you're going to get imprisoned. And Paul said, look, it doesn't matter to me. The only thing that matters to me is Jesus has a race for me to run. He has a course that is marked out for me, and I'm going to run that, and I'm going to run it as well as I can. That is what matters. So now here, Timothy gets to read to some of those same elders and say, Paul has run the race. What he said he wanted to do, he has in fact done. And Paul here can look back on a race well run. And then the last thing, which is where we kind of see that he's really telling us that he's run it well, is he says, I have kept the faith, or I have been loyal to the trust. Now when he says this, he could be just simply saying, I made it to the end and I still believe in Jesus. And the fact is, Paul did make it to the end and still believe in Jesus. But much more than that, he's not just saying, I've continued believing. He says, I have kept the faith. When all kinds of people are distorting the gospel, I did not distort the gospel. What was delivered and handed to me, I have accurately kept, and I have handed it to you, Timothy. And I'm encouraging you now, do the same. Keep the faith. And in fact, the, the particular Greek phrase here was used very often when rulers would award somebody that they had given a specific task to, a trust to. The word faith can also be used for trust. And when they had done this, gave them a task to accomplish, and they said the person did well, same phrase that Paul's using here. Jesus gave me a trust to keep, and I have done it. So Paul's saying, look, there were many temptations. There were many trials. Timothy, you know the suffering that I've had to endure from the very first moment you were around me. You know it's been there. But here I am at the end. I still believe in Jesus. I am still holding on to the gospel. I am passing it on to the next generation. I have done what Christ asked me to do. But again, not to pat himself on the back, but to say, Timothy, I did it. Now, the baton's in your hand. You do the same thing. So Paul's looking back, seeing that despite his sins, his failures, he has finished the race marked out for him, and he has done it well, and he's setting an example for Timothy in his own life. And he really brings this home when he says, okay, that's my past and my present. What about the future? And Paul looks to the reward that is coming here in 2 Timothy 4.8 where he says, there is in store for me 
Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness. So notice, again, the metaphor is not that I'm near the finish line. I've already crossed. I'm done. All I'm waiting for now is the reward, the, the crown. The, the, the literal word there referred to the laurel wreath they would put on the winner. So it's like when you watch the Olympics and the person's already won the race and now all they're getting to do is stand up on the podium and get the reward, uh, the, the medal for what they've done. That's what Paul is saying, all that is left for him. And he uses this phrase, the crown of righteousness. Again, the word crown, Stephanos, for which my daughter Stephanie was actually named. She was named after this Greek word. That's what happens when your dad's a geek. Um, you, you get, I mean, it means to be crowned. Okay, it's the, the laurel wreath that was put on. But notice here, the, there you would get it, you know, the winner of an athletic competition would get it. And it's a favorite metaphor of biblical authors. They loved using and talking about this crown. But here, notice, it's the crown of what? Righteousness. See, it's not some little laurel, you know, where you take a piece of laurel and kind of weave it together in a crown and put it on, and after a few weeks, it's rotting away. No, this is righteousness. It is a crown that will endure, and it's, it's not a crown for what Paul has done, but he is being awarded with the righteousness of Christ, that everything that I have hoped for, that I have preached, that I have proclaimed in the gospel, the Lord is going to verify and accomplish and do every bit of that. I'm going to be recognized as being his own. And this is where, again, remember that Nero is the guy he has stood before. He says it's going to be awarded by the Lord, the righteous judge. Jesus is the one who's going to award it to me, and Jesus is righteous. See, so he can give the crown of righteousness to me because it's his to bestow, because he himself is righteous. But there's probably a little bit of a swipe here at Nero. See, the recognition for you and I, and this is what we have to recognize, we sometimes want to say, how can I go along and be faithful to Jesus and have the world applaud me? You can't. You cannot. It will not happen. If the world is applauding us, let me be blunt, Jesus is not. There's no way around that. So we just might as well make peace with it. Recognize that is the way it is. But here's the good news. It does not matter how somebody around here judges me. That's not what matters to me. What matters is what does the Lord say? Because see, many judges here are unrighteous. Don't you wish the story I told about Nero, him abusing his power, was something that you're like, wow, I can't believe leaders would do that. But do we not see it all the time? Because see, they're unrighteous. Jesus is perfectly righteous. And even when we have a judge here who is trying to do righteous, he can't see, he doesn't know everything. Sometimes they acquit the guilty not knowing that they're guilty. Sometimes they, you know, they condemn the innocent not knowing they're innocent. But here's one thing, when we stand before Jesus, he knows all. And he knows it perfectly, truly. And so Paul says, he's going to be the one that is going to award me. And brothers and sisters, that is good news for you and me. 
It is good news to know that come what may, it does not matter how this world speaks of us, what it thinks of us, what judgment it pronounces on us. There is a day. Remember at the beginning of chapter 4, Paul said, Timothy, I'm giving you this charge in, in view of Christ Jesus coming back, in view of his appearing in his kingdom. He is the judge of the living and the dead. That's who he is. That's who you're going to stand from. And it is good to know that even though Nero said guilty, Paul said, but Jesus is going to stand up and say innocent. And not even because everything Paul has done is right. Paul knows not everything he's done is right. But because the righteousness of Christ is going to be his. That's what matters. Our culture right now, I am so tired of the dumb phrase, are you on the right side of history? Yes, because here's where history is going. We are all going to be snatched out of the dust. I'm going to stand in front of Jesus Christ, the righteous one, and I'm going to give account to him. And whatever the culture is saying about me is not going to weigh into the decision. Okay, see, we, we try and shift and sway. And, you know, obviously you've probably been watching over the last week or two where there was the mess that some fool released the draft opinion of the Supreme Court decision, right? And they do that because they're trying to sway the judge. Let me tell you something. I don't think they're going to sway a Supreme Court justice because if I was one, I wouldn't really care what Twitter said. But let me tell you something. Nobody will sway Jesus Christ on the day we stand before him. He's not taking a vote. It's not a democracy. It doesn't matter. The whole world can condemn. And friend, that is where history is going. You want to be on the right side of history? Live in light of that day. That's exactly what Paul is encouraging Timothy to understand here. Uh, he's speaking and he's, he's uh, urging him to do this. And notice he says that this is going to happen on that day. It's the day that Christ returns. The fact is you and I might breathe our last, close our eyes, and it seems like unrighteousness wins. But Paul says, make no mistake, on that day, on the day Jesus Christ returns, on the day he sets his feet back on that planet, all is going to be made right. Everything is going to be as it should be. It may not be in this life. It's not even ultimately, even when Paul died, Paul is still waiting for that to be awarded to him. It's going to happen when Christ appears. Notice that's his phrase, at his return. And on that day, and this is good news, not only is Paul going to be received because of the righteousness of Christ, but he is going to be rewarded for his labors. Everything he did, everything he suffered, all that was outpoured out of him. Jesus, make no mistake, nobody around you may know what you did. Jesus sees. And nobody rewards like our God. Nobody rewards like our God. And so Paul says this is going to happen. And then there's this great phrase, because again, it's not just about Paul. Notice, and not only to me. Timothy, I'm not just talking about what's going to happen to me. It's going to be for everyone who has longed for his appearance. Here's the amazing thing. In this race, it's not just that, I mean, if you and I had to compete with Paul to get the crown of righteousness, what chance do you and I have, honestly? Let, let's just be honest here. I, well, I'm giving up in the race because, geez, Paul's already crossed the finish line way ahead of me. And there's no way I'm matching that time. Here's the good news. We all get the crown. You all get the gold medal and better. 
if you have loved him and long for his appearing. Everyone who has longed for Jesus' return and therefore are living in light of that return, they are serving him. All of them are going to be rewarded for their service by Jesus himself. I don't know exactly how it's going to happen, but friend, in that moment, every bit of suffering is so good. Having done some you know, distance running in my life, marathons and half marathons, and you're running, and it hurts, and you are tired, and you're wanting to get there. When you are done, and you look at your time, I can remember when I got my best time in a, in a half marathon, and being like, oh, man, it, every bit of my side hurting is worth it. That is all forgotten. There's another metaphor that the moms in here can understand. Jesus says, when you're in labor, what's it like for a woman? Charlene's shaking her head. You've done this 11 times, right, Charlene? So is, is labor fun, Charlene? But what happens when you hold the baby? Oh, man, it's behind. Because I can remember because, you know, Tim was only like five months old. Linda was like, I want another one. Okay, I'm willing to participate in this process, but... Because she, I was like, don't, don't you remember when I was there? She's like, no, no, it wasn't that bad. I, <laughs> I was there. <laughs> I'm watching. You know, there's, it's like those drugs they give you. You're kind of forgetting what this was like a little bit. But see, that's the way it is. And that's the way it's going to be on that day. Whatever price you have paid. Paul tells us in another passage, whatever sufferings we have right now are not even worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed. Even if you are the Apostle Paul, and the last thing you knew was when you laid your neck down and they chopped your head off, he's not going to be saying, oh, look what I did. It's going to be like, look at the glory. Every fiber of my being radiates with the glory of God. I am a man fully alive, who he made me to be. And so Paul is saying, Timothy, when your side's hurting, remember that's coming. It's coming. Everything you have longed for is on the way. And this is such a key metaphor in the New Testament. Let me show you just a few places. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4, Peter says, And when the chief shepherd appears, notice the same thing, Jesus is appearing. Um, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. So notice Jesus appearing, crown. Same points that Paul's making here. Uh, there he's referring to him as a chief shepherd because he's actually writing to the elders uh, of the church in that case. Notice James says, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. We've got love. We've got the crown being given to us and it's telling us to persevere in uh, Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul had written to the Philippian church when he was facing trial the first time. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there. Notice we're longing for his appearing. The Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they are like his glorious body. That's what's awaiting us when you are going to be like him. The Apostle John puts it this way. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know this, that when we see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Same thing Paul is saying. 
If you're alive when this happens, glory be to God, it'd be great if we were here. But whether we are or whether Jesus has snatched us up out of the dust, there's going to be that moment we're going to open our eyes, we're going to behold him, and you are going to be transformed. Your body is going to be like his body. You are going to be full of the very glory of God. Righteousness will be on you. No more sin, no more struggle, no more temptation. All of that is gone. All the tears are wiped away. That's what we have to look forward to. Now see, that's what Paul says, and he's laying this out for us to understand. On that day, faith is going to be sight. The dead will be raised. Everyone will stand before Christ. Sin will be put away forever, and believers are going to receive their reward from God. On that day, death will be swallowed up by life. Glory will swallow up sin and shame. Our bodies will be transformed from frail bodies that are subject to sin, longing for sin, and they will be powerful bodies radiating the glory of God and as much like Jesus Christ as a created being can be. C.S. Lewis rightly observes, if you and I could see each other on what we will be on that day, we would want to fall down and worship one another because we will be so full of the glory of God. Is that worth continuing the race for? See, Paul is saying, Timothy, hang in there. I know it hurts. I know the sides. Keep running because this is what is ahead. So, How do we apply the word? What does this mean for us? Number one, real briefly, is simply, I want to remind us of the gospel. This is not salvation by works. This is not, you better do well or else. Okay, Paul has repeated the gospel over and over and over again. Some ridiculous scholars want to look at it and say, well, this can't really be Paul because he's preaching the gospel to Timothy. Like, that's because he's opening his mouth. And when Paul opens his mouth, gospel comes out. So he's repeated it over and over and over again in the letter. This is in light of all of that. Paul has spoken it to him. The eternal rewards here are for those who have been justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is always that way. Christ will come back, and he will judge the living and the dead. That's not a question. The question is, will I be ready? when I stand before him. I want to urge you, I don't take for granted just because you're coming here, I urge you, have you looked to Christ in faith? Do you believe so that on that day the crown can be put on your head? Because friend, you will not make the race on your own. You, You will not do it, nor will I. If you have not, I urge you to look to him today. And I want to urge you, not even by fear-mongering of what the other side is, because there is another side and it's not good, but for the joy that is there. You were made. Every strand of your DNA was made to know and glorify and enjoy God forever. Now and forever. Do not throw that away. Now, for those who are believers, let me ask one or two questions and we come to the Lord's table. Again, Paul's point in this passage, sometimes we want to do this, and I want to motivate, and I want to stand up here and tell y'all, Paul ran well, I've run well, you all get out there and run. But that's not his point. His point is, Timothy, I want to encourage you. I want motivation for you to finish well. 
His point is that through Timothy to the Ephesian church, and because the Holy Spirit of God put it in the Word of God for you and me to finish well. That's what this passage is really about. And he does that by saying, remember the reward. Remember the reward that lays before you. The motivation to endure and serve well in this age is the eternal reward that we will receive from Christ himself. That's what should motivate us. So there's a big word, eschatology. And when you hear it and it gets thrown about, it usually is I've got 900 charts up behind me and we're all arguing about everything that's going to happen between now and when Jesus returns. That's not right for about 100 different reasons. But here's the most important one. Eschatology in the New Testament is always to motivate you and I to holy living now. Not, not arguing about what's going to happen here and what does this obscure passage mean and all of that kind of stuff. It is always to say, here's what it's about. Jesus wins. He's on the throne. You're going to be rewarded for faithful service, Christian. Stand in front of him. Run the race as hard as you can now. Put away sin because it's destructive. Embrace righteousness because that's where you're headed. That is always what eschatology is about. It's reminding us of the glory we're going to enjoy then. So we're willing, even if need be, to suffer now. So let me ask just a couple of brief questions to, to break this out for us. Paul says that, you know, this is for all who have longed for his return. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I want you to be honest. When you read that, how much do I say, I am longing for his return? If you're not, pick up your phone and swipe left and get to the news today and just read it for like five minutes. It's a broken mess. It just is. But when we look at it, I can either get upset, I can do something really counterproductive like get on Twitter and say hateful things about other people, or I can say, oh Jesus, come again. Even so, Lord Jesus, come again. See, because you get through the book of Revelation where John's been given this vision and all this stuff is laid out and what's he saying at the end? Oh, the spirit and the bride say, come. Even so, Lord Jesus, come. This is a mess. Is that how we're responding? How much do you long for him to return? Does the recognition of eternal reward, notice, there is going to be, you and I are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, but not because God's weighing out our works and are you saved? That's all taken care of. On that day, it is, you are my people, you are separate, you are among the sheep. But there is another judgment we stand through, but it's not a judgment to embarrass you and I. Sometimes it's, the, you know, well, everything you ever thought is going to be played and all the believers are going to, that's not the picture on the last day. It is everything you have ever done or attempted to do for Christ, he's going to reward you for. Does that motivate me now? Does that cause me to live faithfully now? And therefore, I can kind of answer that by, when I look back at my life thus far, how do I characterize it? Can I, can I look back like Paul and say, I've been trying to run the race? I'm, I'm laboring. 
Because if not, great time to say, Lord, when we come to the table, strengthen me, I want to run better this week. Not, not to earn salvation, but because of what you have already been giving me. So I encourage you this week, be thinking through that and say, Lord, I mean, that's a, a lot of what the sabbatical is going to be for Linda and I. Is, the, is there any adjustment, Lord? We've been here, I've been walking with you for 44 years at this point, and I've been pastor here for 28. Any, is there any course correction you want me to make? Is there anything you want me to be different? Because I want to run as close behind you as I possibly can. Because that's life, that's joy, that's, that's everything I need. So is there anything that the Lord would do? Now, we're going to come to the Lord's table. And at this table, we look back, we experience the Lord's presence here, but we also look forward. It's so important that we focus on each aspect. Because the Lord is going to return. And Jesus told us, you know, that... that he uh, would not drink of the cup again until the kingdom of God comes. He's longing for the day when he's feeding every one of us. And we are told to do this until he comes, so we're going to. So I encourage you to hear this word of invitation. I promise you I did not tell Greg Younger when he stood up earlier and read Romans 10 that I was going to be using Romans 10 to invite you to the table. It's almost as if there is a God. So hear the word of invitation. This is the word we are proclaiming. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. If you are here and you believe in your heart, the gospel, that last song we sang, I believe in God the Father, I believe in Christ his Son, I believe in the Holy Spirit, I believe in the three in one. If you believe that, you are invited to this table. It's not our table, it's the Lord's table. And we invite you to come. If you do not, I call you to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. I urge you to look to him in faith because I assure you the day will come and we will all stand before God and you want to be clothed in his righteousness. So brothers and sisters, what I received from the Lord, I pass on to you that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Brothers and sisters, go ahead and take the uh, packet and open up the bread. Father, though you are spirit, in the beginning you created all things, material and spirit, and you pronounced them good. And when you made us, we were made of body and soul for that is our very nature, what it means to be human. 
And therefore, when we sinned, and you worked redemption for us, your Son took our flesh to himself, so that we might be saved, not only in soul, but also in body. And therefore, Lord, as we come to this table, we look forward to the day when Jesus returns in his body to consummate your kingdom, raising us from the dead so that we will live and enjoy you forever. We take this bread in obedience to our Lord, looking back to his obedience and death in our behalf, communing with him at this table, and looking forward to the day when he returns, and we see him as he is, and so that we will be transformed to be like him. Brothers and sisters, take and eat. Lord Jesus, on the night you were betrayed, you instituted this meal, telling us to take the bread and the cup in remembrance of you. And on that same night, you told us you would not drink of the fruit of the vine again until the kingdom of God comes. So we take this cup in obedience to your command, looking back to your death in our behalf, communing with you at this table, but looking forward to the day you return and we drink with you in the consummated kingdom. Jesus, we thank you. Take and drink. Let's stand together and cry out to the Spirit of God together for his work. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your work in our lives. For it is revealed to us in the Word of God that we have been saved through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. That we walk by the Spirit and that we can overcome the world because greater is He who is in us than He who is in the world. And that we are sustained and kept by you, O Holy Spirit, until the day we stand before our Lord Jesus. So we cry out, Lord, as individuals and as a congregation, we cry out, come upon us now, O Spirit of God. Open our eyes to see Jesus exalted to the right hand of the Father. Commune with us each day this week so that we might hear his voice and stoke in us a hunger and a love and a longing for his return when we will sit and eat and drink with fullness of joy in the kingdom forever and ever. Spirit of God, we ask all of this for the glory of our Father and in the name of our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And if you agree, say amen. amen. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord will never be in vain. I remind you as I do each week, you are 
blessed. Go forth and be a blessing through Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.